0: What do you say we um, continue letting the word of God dwell in us richly by opening our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, would you? And while you're opening your Bibles to 2 Timothy 2, would you humbly admit something with me? That often when you look at the church, and I'm meaning here probably just a horizontal view only, but would you admit that often when you look at the church it can almost seem like you're riding a roller coaster blindfolded. I use that analogy because riding a roller coaster is in and of itself somewhat jerky and surprising, wouldn't you admit? You can know what's coming and yet you still feel thrown from side to side and your stomach flies up to your throat and then back down and you're curving and dropping and, and you see it. Imagine being blindfolded. You had no idea what's coming next. I think sometimes that's what it feels like watching the church, just from a horizontal earthly perspective. I mean, uh, sudden uh, defections, shocking doctrinal disputes and division, surprising detours. Deserters. It feels like you're on a roller coaster ride with a blindfold. You don't know what's coming next sometimes. In those kinds of times, God's authority over the church and in the church comes underneath the church and gives us a solid place to land and not a blind ride to board. Know this, even in the middle of swerving leaders and unsettled followers, God's true church stands firm with this seal. He knows them and they obey him. This is precisely the point that's made in verses 14 to 19 of Second Timothy 2. This is the flag unfurled, in fact. So with your eyes on those verses, 2 Timothy 2, let's read this week's but God verse and the passage in which it is found. My goal this morning is to highlight just a couple of major thoughts. I'll unpack them based on this text and then we'll end with an astounding story that's actually the root for this passage here from the Old Testament. I think you'll be left both trembling and thankful. Let's dive in. Verse 14, 2 Timothy 2. Paul would write this to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, whose name was Timothy. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God. If you're wondering, the antecedent for the pronoun them there is back in verse 10. It's the elect of God. He's to remind them of these things to charge these people before God. Here's what's charge, not to quarrel about words. This does no good, it only ruins the hearers. In contrast to that, he says, Timothy, present yourself, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, who rightly handles the word of truth. Don't you love the contrast between ruinous words and yet God's righteous word? He says, Timothy, you occupy yourself with that word, not the ruinous words of men. In fact, he discusses more about those words in verse 16. He says, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. This is a timely text for today, isn't it? And he says here, um, their talk will spread like gangrene, very infectious. And then he lists two men who are part of these infectious talkers these babblers who irreverently spread ruin. He says, among these kinds of men are Hymenaeus and Philetus. And they have swerved from the truth, meaning they once were in the straight lane, but they've swerved now. They're saying the resurrection has already happened. So they deserted sound doctrine. They're now espousing false doctrine, heresy, verse 18 closes with this. They're upsetting the faith of some. They're shipwrecking. They're destroying others' faith. It's in the middle of this situation that verse 19 comes to us. It's so beautifully comforting and settling. He says, but God's, will you say those two words with me? But God's, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Notice, first of all, the church's situation is described between verses 14 and 18. And in a word, we'd say it was unsettling. And it was unsettling because the church was filled with, maybe not filled, but the church had some leaders who were wordy, but wordless capital W. In other words, they could talk a lot, but they weren't speaking God's truth. They were unscriptural. They were unbiblical. So I say this, they were wordy, but wordless. In fact, notice in your text, some of the words used to describe these men, two of them, of course, are Hymenaeus and Philetus. It says that they're quarreling. You see that in verse 14? It says they have ruinous kinds of language in verse 14. Verse 16 is irreverent babble. It's told Timothy to avoid that. It leads to ungodliness. It, he calls it their talk. And he describes it as infectious by using the metaphor gangrene. And, and so these, these wordy but wordless men were not helping uh, or uplifting or edifying people in the church. They were actually infecting them with deathly and deadly disease, spiritually speaking. Now their deathly disease is specified here as, as something around the fact that the resurrection has already happened. And what they were saying was probably this. It has its roots in some of the current uh, of that day, the current uh, heresy of that day in which they would say the body was evil. And so surely if the body's evil and the body's not a good thing, God would not raise that body at the end, and so they were saying that the resurrection was more of a symbolic thing that occurred when you came to Christ. But there is no after-life uh, resurrection, which in, us, in essence then says that Christ's resurrection is of no account, because he's the first fruits. And we're only guaranteed resurrection because Christ has been raised. First Corinthians 15 lays this out. It's a, an orthodox, solid, essential doctrine, the resurrection of Christ and of his church. And they're saying, no, that's not going to happen. So it's false doctrine. It's words that are infectious, and they're causing unsettledness in the church, a lack of stability. Let me just give you an opinion on these two men. Hymenaeus is mentioned in 1 Timothy, by the way, as a blasphemer. We don't have another reference to Philetus, but I'll give you an opinion on who I think these guys were and where I think they may have been a few years prior to this writing. My opinion, I've said that three times, so make sure you hear me well, okay? My opinion is these two men were possibly with Paul when he was in Greece. He had just left Ephesus. He left Timothy there to be their pastor and he called for those elders at Ephesus. He said, guys, meet me at the dock. I'm gonna board a ship. We're gonna go back, but I I, I won't see you again. So he calls for those elders. I wonder... If Philetus and, Her, and, and uh, Hymenaeus weren't in that group who were circled up praying for Paul as he left and weeping over his departure. At that point, they were spot on and straight, right? But it says here that years pass and apparently now they're, they've swerved from the truth. Here's why I think they may have been in that group. If you go back to Acts 20 and you'll read verse 28, Paul warns them, he warns the elders, that certain men will come from out, uh, other places to try to to sway the people. And then he says this shocking statement to the elders. He says, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted words. That's an interesting, almost prophetic phrase Paul uses for what would happen in the church at Ephesus from among those very elders. Some would arise who would twist words and speak untruth. And what is going on in this church? That very thing by two men. They're twisting words. Their talk is like gangrene. They're quarreling. They're ruining others by their language. It's false doctrine. Are you, are you tracking with me? I wonder if they weren't in that group and probably at that point thought, man, we're good to go. But as they begin to listen to the cultural voices, as they begin to pay attention to false ideologies, man-made opinions more than God's divine word, they swerved from the truth, shipwrecked their own life and the lives of others. This was the situation in the church at Ephesus, at least with a few of the leaders. In contrast to this, Paul was to be a word-wielding man. Notice how, excuse me, Timothy was to be a word-wielding man. So Paul says, Timothy, don't depend on your own words and your own opinions, you trust God's word study it, be approved by him, rightly divide it. The words rightly divide means to cut a straight line, to mark a clear path. It's often a surgical word, means to cut something out. And I don't think it's accidental that Paul would use a word to cut something out at the same time talking about this, this gangrenish talk that's infecting the church. He's saying, Paul, use God's word and cut out the heresy. Man, draw a straight line and just get rid of that infectious kind of language and talk that's upsetting the faith of of the church. So here's what's happening. The situation is unsettling, but God's truth is what brings stability and steadiness to the church. And Timothy's being encouraged to be that kind of leader and pastor. So in the middle of this unsettling situation, we find verse 19. We find God interrupting that situation with his foundation, which, by the way, is sure. So this is comforting. This is helpful. That in the middle of unsettling situations in the church, we know that there is a foundation. It's God's, and it is sure. So let's read verse 19 together. You have your Bible there in front of you. Just read this, whatever translation you have. Just read verse 19. Here's our take-home verse. It says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. A beautiful verse in the middle of this situation that's very unsettling and unstable. We have this clear concrete concrete truth that God has a firm foundation that's standing. Let's answer three questions about this verse. As we think about this foundation, what is the foundation what is the seal and what is on the seal? Question one, what is the foundation? I would rather ask this question, who is the foundation? Because I think the foundation here is the true church of God. Now I base that on a couple of things. One is the pronouns used in the, in the, in the verse. Notice what he says, the Lord knows those who are his. So it's like this foundation has a, has a personal nature to it. It's a, it's a people, it's a a set of persons, like the Lord knows those people. And he says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord. So again, there's a personal nature to this this foundation he's describing, I think it's a people. Also, the context would lead me to say that this foundation is the true church of God because the first four or five verses are all about these people who, who think they're the people of God, but they're actually not. They're swerving from the truth. They're unsettled, their faith is shipwrecked. In the middle of that, there's a firm foundation and as God's people, he knows who they are. Now, let's be honest about a couple things. The word foundation in the New Testament at times means different things. So we're not saying here that Christ is not the foundation. In certain passages, he is. First Corinthians chapter three, Paul says that he's the foundation of the church. But did you know that in Ephesians two, Paul says that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. And in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says that the church is the buttress and fortress of the truth, kind of a foundation analogy there. So it's okay to say that based on context and based on maybe the point of the passage, Paul has different ways to express the the foundation in view. And in this case, he's saying that the foundation is the true church of God. It's God's true and legitimate people. Now, what is On this foundation, it says here that this foundation bears a seal. What is the seal? The seal, this again, this is the reason I believe that the foundation here is the true church of God. The seal is is really an imagery used to describe something of authenticity. So in that culture, uh, a Caesar or a ruler or a leader would often sign a document or send a, a message or declare an edict and he would seal it with something that indicated it was legitimately from him. And often it would, it would bear a symbol or a, um, you know, a mark that, oh, this is definitely from the king. And so Paul here is saying that there is a people of God and they bear his authentic mark. They're not counterfeit. Like maybe you look around and you say, well, that's not of the Lord and that's not of the Lord and that's not true doctrine. But in the middle of all that, there is a people of God and they bear his authentic, legitimate mark, his seal. They are truly of God. And the third question then would be this, what is on this seal? In the Bible here records this seal as having two sides. I would say there's an, a, like a, a divine side and an earthly side, or maybe a heavenly perspective and a human perspective. We see the seal from two angles, we could say easily. Here's the first thing. I'm going to spend some time talking about these. Here's the two sided seal that is on God's true church. The first is this the Lord knows those who are His. In other words, God has sovereign knowledge of His church. We could even say that God has sovereign knowledge and control of and in His church. In other words, there's no inability on God's part to know who's actually in. Even when we feel like sometimes we're not sure. Have you ever felt that way? You can raise your hand and smile and nod. Sure you have. Like, oh, I'm not sure about that. And you're not trying to be haughty or proud. But you're trying to be a discerning follower of Christ. And you wonder like, man, is, is that really legit as a Christian? Is that belief? Is that doctrine? Is that actually right? Does the Bible say that? You're trying to filter things through the word? but you hear a lot of wordiness and you're wondering, wow, what's biblical, what's not? Sometimes, you know, we kind of have this, um, like I'm just admittedly kind of a, I'm just not sure I can figure all this out, but guess what? God's never had that thought. God knows precisely and exactly who his people are. That's helpful, that's comforting. Now, I wanna pause here and, and, and kind of unpack this a bit. This is a very important point. It's, first of all, the reason that Paul uses the word elect in verse 10. You see, Paul's aim in this paragraph, in this passage, is not to use other metaphors he's used before. Like, the church has been called a body with parts. It's been called a, a, a family with members. It's been called an army with soldiers. It's been called a temple with stones. Like, there's different metaphors. But in this case, Paul intentionally calls these believers God's elect. Why? Because he's making sure Timothy hears something. Timothy, God knows. God has chosen and predestined. He's gathering a people to himself and he's fully capable and confident of doing exactly that. So he uses a word to describe this this confident God that we have. There are a people that he's calling out. He knows them and he will call them out. So he uses the word elect to describe this and to kind of settle Timothy in a very unsettling, shaking situation. Now you hear that, you may think, Todd, I'm not sure how I relate to that, how I can process this. Well, this is not an uncommon theme in the Bible. First of all, in the Old Testament, did you know that just because someone was a national Jew or an ethnic Jew did not mean they were a spiritual follower of Yahweh? You can read the Old Testament, you'll find there are several moments in which God purged from his people those who may have been Jewish or Israelite, but they weren't believers. Second of all, you find this same teaching in the words of Christ. A couple of key moments to highlight. The first one is in a parable he told of the seeds and the weeds. Now we we know it. As the wheat and the tares, but we don't speak in terms of tares around here, and very few people, you know, use that term, talk about weeds. We talk about weeds, right? That's how my garden uh, looks and a lot of times. Like, oh, there's weeds. I don't use the word tares. So I prefer to call it the parable of the seeds and the weeds. And in this parable, Christ says that a man, that, that God went out and he sowed good seed, and then at night the enemy came and sowed evil seed. And so when the workers saw this, they said, hey, let us go get all the evil seed out. And here's a stunning answer no farmer would ever say. Jesus said, let them grow together. And the word let there really means to suffer under. Uh, It's used about 150 times in the New Testament. And about a third of those is actually translated forgive. So the call upon leaders in the church, while we are to be discerning, and diligent is it's not our ultimate role to figure out your eternal condition. Let them grow together. When I, when I see that, I realize, well, wow, God is saying there is a true church in his apparent church. There is a remnant among his, pe- among his people. There always has been, always will be. That's the way it works. You find, you find this in the pastoral epistles. You find this in the book of Hebrews that when, when the writers would often write to the church and they'd use the word brothers and sisters to, to speak to the church, there are paragraphs and sections where you read, you're like, man, he's talking to unbelievers right now. And yet church, the letter's addressed to, to Christians. It's because the, the apostles, they knew, even in the perceived apparent church, there, there, there is a true church actually that exists. So he, they all realize there's a mixed audience when this letter's gonna be read. And so they, they make appeals to those who, who are in that crowd, but they're not really in Christ. So are you following me? And perhaps the most stunning place we find this same principle is in Matthew 7, in which Jesus says that in the last day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not cast out many demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works? And God will respond to them with these words, I never knew you. So church, with every ear you've got, hear this question, does God know you? You see, I think the question, do you know God, is a good question, but it's not the most important question. The most important question is, does God know you? You see, I think in our culture, we have people who create God based on their own terms. They create the God that they like and which they can kind of meet the standards and it salves their conscience and you know, satisfies what they're after. So they create a God and they say, I know God. The question is not, do you know a God of your own making? The question is, does the God of the Bible know you? You see, church, hear me loud and clear. We don't come to God on our own terms. We come to God on his terms and his terms all wrapped up in the name of Jesus Christ. See, everyone needs to hear this, that we are all either were or are at enmity with God. Every single one of us born in a depraved state by birth and by action born in sin. So how does a person born in sin alienated from God become right with God. It's not by our own terms, but God has created the terms and God has sought peace with his enemies. And he's done that through his son, Jesus Christ. So God sent Jesus to the earth to live the perfect life, which what you and, you and I owe to the law. We can never do that though, but Jesus Christ did that. And then he died a death which would cover the sins of all those who've not fulfilled the law. His blood was poured out on the cross as the means of forgiveness for all sinners. And now anyone who believes that Jesus Christ is God's sent son, who died and rose again by the power of God and stands as the only mediator between God and man, anyone who believes that is now at peace with God. And anyone who doesn't believe that, no matter what God they say they know, God does not know them. So this is an important distinction we must make here that God has sovereign knowledge of the church and we come to him on his terms. So will you just ask yourself this question in these moments here? Does God know you? Meaning, have you come to God on his terms? And has he made you part of his family? Has he taken you from enemy to friend, from darkness to light? From war to peace, that only happens through God's son, Jesus Christ, and repentance from sin and belief in his name. Now, while we're on this topic of God's sovereign knowledge of the church, this first part of the seal, I wanna just make a few more comments in regards to the elect, God's chosen people, these ones that are true even in the perceived church. That when Paul's referring to the elect, Notice what he does not say. Paul does not say, Timothy, since God knows his people, since he's elected them, since he's in charge of them and in control of them without any doubt or worry, just take a break, relax. Hands off, Timothy, like don't remind people of things, don't charge them. He he actually says the opposite. You notice this? He says, Timothy, be busy about your pastoral ministry. Remind them charge them, keep this in front of them. And he even says about himself, he says, in fact, I endure all things for the elect's sake. So watch this church. The fact that God has a people, knows them and is in charge of them, control them, does not mean that your work is unnecessary. It doesn't mean your witness is unnecessary. It actually means that your witness and work is not wasted. The most motivated people in the world towards evangelism and discipleship and working in the church and witnessing uh, around the church and outside the church, the most motivated people should be those who know God has an elect people. Because we know that's the ordained means by which he uses to bring his entire family all together. Man, I want my feet to be busy, my hands to be busy, because I'm confident God is saving his people. So understand, God is up to something. He's not finished. He's doing something now. And we're part of that as his ordained means, so to speak. This is God's sovereign knowledge of the church. And it is so comforting and helpful and motivating. It's the first half of this seal. It's the divine perspective upon uh, the church. The second part he mentions in verse 19 is, as this, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I refer to this as God's separated people as a church. This would be the the human side, so to speak. In other words, God knows us, yes, but how do others know we're his true church? And the answer is separation, distinction. We depart from iniquity. We pursue holiness, we live as a set apart people. Now, this can be difficult to grasp at times because you may begin to think, well, does that mean I'm, I'm doing good things to earn God's favor? It means I've got to live a certain way to kind of make God love me or to show that I, I, I'm his and that, that's what makes me his is what I do. No, 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 no. He's simply here repeating what he said in Philippians, that God's salvation of us is what produces works uh, from us. So the works flow Because of God's favor, they don't earn God's favor. Here's a really key verse that I think helps us understand maybe what he's talking about when he says that we depart from iniquity, we pursue holiness, we we live as set apart and distinct. It's 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Look at this verse. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from, from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So we're not doing anything to earn God's favor, But we realize that as God's true church, as his true follower, there is this responsibility and and desire, this new affection to live unto him and not unto the world. Hebrews would word it this way, verse 14 of chapter 12, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, just this striving for holiness, not that you're earning or manufacturing it, but instead, that is flowing from what God has given you. And so this new desire, these new appetites, this is what he's talking about here, that, that God's people are marked by their willingness, their desire, their appetite to run away from evil. By the way, First John would we'll just bear this out. First John straight through all five chapters, take you 15 minutes. You'll find that the two marks of genuine legitimate believers are that they obey God and love people. That's the whole point of the book. And this is the same thing he's saying here. The seal has two sides. God knows he's in sovereign control, has sovereign knowledge of his people and that his people will depart from iniquity. There's a holiness, a set-apartness about them. Now, when you see these two aspects of the seal, I think there's one story that will make everything kind of come together. And it's kind of the knockout punch of the paragraph. And it's knowing where these two sides of the seal come from. They come from a story in number 16. It's the story of Korah's rebellion. And these two statements that comprise the seal that's on God's true church, Paul derives them from his recollection of Korah's rebellion. And let me rehearse it for you briefly as we kind of bring our sermon to a, to a runway, and land this plane, right? Korah's rebellion was at a time in the wilderness wanderings. Moses and Aaron were, were leading the people of God and Korah found some people who felt like God's word as revealed in his law wasn't really sufficient. In other words, God probably didn't appoint Moses and Aaron nor did he appoint a certain way that the priests were to operate. He felt as a Levite that, that anyone could offer uh, offerings and sacrifices. And he was watch this, in essence, trying to say, Moses, I know what God said in his word about the way it should be and, and the way he's ordained things, but I think I've got a better idea. So he brought his word in contrast to God's word. Sounds very similar to what's happening in Ephesus, doesn't it? Korah was a man of words, but they weren't God's words. And so he challenged Moses, he challenged Aaron, he said, hey, I've got a better idea, I've got a better system. Let's just let anyone offer offerings. Let's let anyone offer incense. And in fact, let me do it, let other folks do it. I, don't want, I think the way God's doing it is kind of unfair after all. And Moses answers and says, "Korah, if you think that's how God, what God's up to, then you bring your people out and we'll let God show who his people are. That's verse five of number 16. That's where he draws the first part of this seal number 16, five, in which Moses says, okay, Korah, bring out your people and we'll have your people here. We'll have Israel here with Moses and Aaron and we'll let God show who his people are because he knows. He says, we'll do this tomorrow morning. And so that night, God told Moses, you go tell the people of Israel now one thing, Moses, depart from the iniquity of Korah. That's in verses 24 and 26 of number 16. That's the second part of the seal. So both phrases come from number 16. So Moses does this. He tells the children of Israel, do not participate in Korah's rebellion and his sin. It's deathly, it's destruction. He's twisting words. He's saying things that aren't true. Don't side with him. Morning comes and people take their places. And a few hundred with Korah. From what I gather, number 16, the vast majority Moses and Aaron, and what ensues is the opening of the earth and the swallowing of Korah and all those who are with him. God knew who his people were, didn't he? And those who departed from that iniquity were sure thankful they did, weren't they? You see, this is what marks God's true church, that God has sovereign knowledge of them, and they've got a. Uh, a marked difference about them. And so here's how I think Paul, using that story to help Timothy have a settled attitude in the middle of a very unsettling situation. Here's what Paul is saying. There are a thousand cultural voices you could listen to, Timothy, and your people. There are many things they may want to say, well, is is that true? Is that true, says Timothy? Timothy, Using the word, you cut a really straight line. Make it clear, this is God's perspective. You've got to shut down the babble, the irreverent talk because it's just infectious and it will lead to death. And in the middle of all these unsettling voices and opinions, be sure, Timothy, that I know who the true church is and they'll be the ones who will side with God and his word. They'll have a marked difference about them. Is this not timely? As I said, is this not timely for today? Do you not feel sometimes you're being hemmed in with, a, with so many voices? You wonder like, Man, wh- which is right, which is wrong? And sometimes even if you know what's right, you feel a little timid to maybe speak it. Like you've got about a, you know, a, an inch wide landing strip to kind of make sure your words sound exactly right. And then now, apparently, even if the words you don't say, I mean, it, it, this is a tumultuous time. What I'm finding is that a lot of people are so worried about man's opinions and the culture's acceptance that they've thrown away God's word and they're chasing man's ideas. They've become very wordy and yet wordless. And that will only end in destruction and death. And I pastorally plead with you, the sheep at first family, do not be deceived by words that sound on the surface appealing. when in actuality, they may actually be very unbiblical. You should test every movement, every leader, every cause in the church and outside the church. Test them all by God's word. Use this word to draw a really straight line. Cut out the infection. Your leaders should do the same as well, all your elders. If you have questions about the times we're in, the situations, what is our stance? What should be my stance? Where do we land? And we've been meeting on Tuesday mornings, praying, thinking and prepping and reading. Be happy to walk you through some of these things. Just talk to us. Here's what we don't want you to do. Let every single voice that's speaking to you suddenly seem like the one you should follow just because you want the, the, the culture, the society to kind of give you a thumbs up. There may be a price to pay for the culture's disapproval in the meantime. I'm good with that. What I don't want to pay is the price for missing God's approval. In a few short years of having the culture give you a thumbs up or society think you you fit, it's not worth an eternity away from I don't want to swerve from the truth. See, I'd rather endure everything for the sake of the elect. I want you to endure with me. Let us hold fast to to God's word and seek to be approved by him without any shame. Jesus summed all this up in a verse in John 10 in which he said this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You see, here are the marks of God's true church. The foundation that is settled and stable in unshaking uh, in in, in shaky kinds of times. It's this, that even amid swerving leaders, unsettled followers, God's true church stands with this seal. He knows them and they obey him. My penetrating question to you is this: Are you in that family? A stark, sobering question, but necessary today in the times we live. Are you in that family? Are you in God's true church? We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward/sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.